their phrase that they have at the Burton Hand Half Marathon is the joy of running in community. It's on all their T-shirts. It's on all their signs. The joy of running in community. And that's why I, I, I struggle with this idea of competition because these guys are very hardcore runners. They're fast. They're strong. They do Ragnars. They do sub-three-hour marathons. But always as a gang, as a team, a cross-country team. So those things began to sort of connect for me. Like, huh, I, I'm running with these Amish dudes. They all run together. I'm running with these donkeys. They're all having fun. I would finish runs with the donkeys and my wife and my friend Zeke feeling way better than other runs because we were going slower. We were communicating. Your consciousness is off yourself. It's on somebody else. So for me, I, I just started to feel and see the effects of running as a group. That's Christopher McDougall. And this is episode 83 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And every week on this show, well, you know what I do. I sit down with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. I've got a great episode for you this week. I had the chance to sit down with best-selling author Christopher McDougall while he was on tour for his new book. It's called Running with Sherman, and it's a heartwarming story about training a rescue donkey to run one of the most challenging races in America. McDougall also wrote the wildly popular Born to Run, and in this conversation, we talked about both of those books, as well as running, writing, storytelling, community, competition, and a lot more. All right, let's get right into it with Christopher McDougall. Going renegade style here outside Book Passage in Corte Madera, California. Christopher McDougall, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. This is what you call it? I'm sitting, literally sitting next to a bunch of shopping, <laughs> shopping shipping pallets <laughs> behind a warehouse. <laughs> I've done some podcasts in interesting places. I interviewed Bart Yasso in the training room of some athletic facility in Richmond, Virginia a little over a year ago. Uh, Scott Jurek under a tree in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, someone else on a porch in Carlsbad, California, uh, and we are literally amongst uh, pallets, like wooden shipping pallets behind Book Passage in Corte Madera, California. You're in the middle of Big Book Tour right yeah. now. We were just talking off mic about how this is very different for you. You're used to a very uh, unstructured routine when you're on your farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and here you are with appointments every couple hours of the day. What's that like for you? <laughs> yeah, it's frantic, and I'm messing it up left and right. The, the, the number of goof-ups. This has been one week, Mario, of a, of a six-week tour, and the major goof-ups are in double digits. If, you know, For example, of course, arriving 15 minutes late today uh, and scheduling a flight for 7 p.m. when I needed to be on a flight at 7 a.m. <laughs> oh, here's my favorite. Showing up in Airbnb checking into the room, making a cup of coffee and lying down and discovering only later that I was supposed to be there a week later. I somehow got into the room and people were like, dude, what are you doing here? <laughs> you booked this for next week. That's week one of the Running with Sherman book tour. Is that typical for you when you're out on book tour to have things be awry like that? No, and this is purely um, arrogance and self-confidence. We did a lot, a lot, a lot of events back for Born to Run, and I sort of came away after three years of, of almost sort of continually cycling touring that I knew it all, you know, that I knew the bookstores and the running shoe stores and the towns, and I thought I could do it better myself. 
So, you know, the seeds of disaster were me insisting to my publisher, let me do all the logistics this time. And you can see how, how well it's going. How are you feeling at this point of your book tour? You're still pretty early on. You've got quite a bit to go from here. You had an event yesterday. You've got one here tonight. Two events Two yesterday. Two yesterday, one yeah. tonight. I think you're going to be in Oregon yeah. tomorrow as of this conversation. Does it stress you out at all? No. You know what the thing about it is that anytime you start to get a little bit tired or tense, you just take a breath and go, dude, you're so lucky. You know, this is, this is what you're hoping for, waiting for. And the reason why it's stressful is because I had this really lucky opportunity that there are community, communities and um, places I've been to before. So I can actually link together city after city after city. But this time around, we went from, we, me, I went from Missouri to Kansas to Colorado. And then I hooked up with Pat Sweeney in LA. And we've gone from San Diego up as far as here. And then I'll go, anyway, so basically on and on and on. But I can always be within three hours of the next event. Running with Sherman is your new book. We're going to dive into it here over the course of this conversation. It has a theme of running that's running through it. Your first book, Born to Run, national bestseller, best-selling running book of all time. You just mentioned how you went on a tour for that. What's this been like for you? Weirdly emotional. And it really caught me off guard because I had not written anything that's this uh, personal. And, you know, the difference with Running with Sherman is, to me, it kind of has two elements. One is the, the training for an unusual adventure element where I'm training for a 29-mile mountain race with a donkey at 12,000 feet. But on top of it, I had to put it in the context of my own personal story. Like, who am I? Why am I here? Why is my wife suddenly going from a Hawaiian hula dancer into a mountain runner with a donkey in Lancaster, Pennsylvania? And it's been strange to go on tour and to be on stage and matter-of-factly, and you saw it in at UTMB in Chamonix. I'm just talking, all of a sudden, I'm like choking up and like there are tears coming to my eyes. And that's weird and, and unusual. Your central character in this book, much like you were in Born to Run, was that by design or has that been by design in the books that you've written? No, it's by coercion. And it's been an evolutionary process because, you know, I think one reason why Born to Run, people like it is because I had a foot in both camps. I was not an insider. I was coming to the sport of running as an outsider. And I think a lot of people actually feel that way. It's, it's surprising. I bet you, if you ask a thousand random runners of various levels, do you consider yourself a real runner? I bet you'd be surprised. I bet you there are 330 marathoners out there that go, no, no, no I'm, not really, I'm not a real runner. I can't break three hours in a marathon, you know? Well, it didn't surprise me at all. I mean, I've worked in various facets of the running industry from being a magazine editor, coach now, worked in a running shoe store for a while. And we have people who'd come into the store, especially, and they would say, no, I'm not really a runner. I only run 5Ks. Right. Uh, and to your point, you've got 330 marathoners, four-hour marathoners. You're like, no, 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 I'm not a real runner. I only run 333, three, four. It doesn't surprise me at all, actually. It is this, the great sport of apologies, of self-doubt. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. And I think... If I had written Born to Run at a, at a different point in my exploration and uh, education, it would have been a worse book. I think I was lucky that I came at it at a point where I'm just kind of, I'm the guy, apologize, I'm not really this, you know, I'm not sure. And I think that, that struck a chord with people because I think a lot of people found themselves in the same position. They were sort of apologizing for their lack of whatever, you know, speed or experience, medals. And so... 
It's actually interesting to have someone talking about my book over our shoulder. In the background. In the background. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should pass the microphone over. And so um, when I first did a draft of Born to Run, I turned it into my editor, and I'm almost invisible in the early draft. And he said, no, there's got to be more of you in here. I said, dude, I'm the least interesting person in the horizon in this story. I got Jen Shelton blowing margarita chunks in the bathroom. I got Scott Jorg. I've got Arnulfo Kimare. I've got a guy named Caballo Blanco. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to say in the background, I'm going to tell their story. And he said, these people are bigger than life. You know, nobody else has ever won seven consecutive Western states. We need an everyman perspective. So he really nudged me into inserting myself more in the book, a very smart move, but one I wasn't comfortable with. Natural Born Heroes, it was the same thing. He urged me to get more involved. And with Charmy, he's like, dude, this is your story. Were you uncomfortable with that in Born to Run because of your background as a war journalist? Where you're not part of the story. You are there to report on other people and what's happening in an area. Yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma with journalism. In European media, it's much more personal. It's much more, you identify much more with the journalists. They'll, they'll use the first person pronoun. They'll say, I believe this. And so the, the line between opinion and um, uh, objective news reporting is much uh, fuzzier in European newspapers. But in the U.S., we, we maintain this, this pretense, this illusion that it's just this sort of omniscient, godlike voice is reporting the news. So, yeah, I, I never, ever, ever would have used a first-person pronoun in reporting. So that was uncomfortable, but secondly, mostly feeling intimidated by the people I was writing about. Was it a little easier this time to include yourself as a central character in the story? Yeah, it was. You know, one thing I really learned from writing Born to Run is the trick is figuring out whose story it is. And with Born to Run, I actually tried to write that book from, from various uh, vantage points. Originally, I really wanted to write the book starting off with Jen and Billy getting lost in the Copper Canyon. To me, it was a really cool, dramatic moment. But the problem with it was it wasn't their story. And I said, so after doing various drafts and getting nowhere, I just sit back and say, Who's, whose story is this? Well, it's definitely Mike a true story. It's, it's his book. And once you get that mentality straight in your head, figuring out whose story it is, and then for Natural Born Heroes, it was definitely Patty Lee Farmer's story. So I got a little bit better at that. Still wasn't good, but I'm getting better. And then for this one, it was clear to me from the beginning, this is actually my story. Uh, this is how I figured this out. So um, at least I had that viewpoint. This, I knew where to start with this one. Let's dig into your origin story with running. You just described how with Born to Run, you were that reluctant runner. I'm not really a runner because of X, Y, and Z. I know from listening to other interviews with you, you weren't really a runner growing up. You rode crew in college at Harvard. Running is a part of training for crew. It's part of training for every sport. But when did you branch out to, quote unquote, just run? See, I think here's the pivotal transformation people make in their running is that there's a moment when running stops becoming the thing you do in order to do something else and becomes the thing you do. So, and in most sports movies, running is always, it's always like the punishment sequence. Right. Like, you know, Rocky, he's, he's, he has to run just so he can box, you know, you know, uh, blue crush, you got to run so you can surf. And there's a point where like, no, I run just because it's awesome and I like it. You know, that Bruce Dern movie about the Dipsy is like one of the few running films where I just really like to run trails, dude. I'm not trying to do anything except run trails. So for me, you know, running was like the punishment you did because you were late to soccer practice or that kind of thing. Have you ever seen that t-shirt? It says running. Our sport is other sports punishment. Yeah. Our sport is your, your, sports, your punishment. sports punishment. Something like that. Yeah, for sure. And that's it. That's the mentality. 
And that's what it was like for me. You know, I had to run for basketball. I had to run for crew. Had to. And then after college, I was trying to run, getting injured, didn't like it. It was always associated with pain. And to me, you know, I wonder, you know, you really wonder what it is that brings those transformative people into your life. And for me, the dude, like the great healer, was Eric Horton. And I just bumped into him because of a random magazine assignment. Men's Journal sent me to Denver to interview a guy from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Eric Horton, because he was a coach that was incorporating lots of different sports and movement types into his coaching of athletes. And so uh, it was while I was chatting with him that he started to tell me, you can totally learn how to run. I can teach you to run in a way where you're not going to get hurt. You're going to really like it. And I said, dude, you're on. Like, you throw down a gauntlet, I'll take the challenge. And that was it. If I had not met Eric Gordon, I wonder if I ever would have had that transformation. What were some of the biggest things that he opened your eyes to? Speed. Speed. Um, and this might be commonplace to more knowledgeable runners, but I was always of the long, slow distance camp. And slower the better, longer the better. And he flipped it. He's like, you got to run fast in order to run long. Uh, things like that. Um, shorting the stride, pitter-patter. I was, always, I was always told, oh, you're, you're tall. You have a really long stride. So I always tried to lengthen out posture, balance, um, joyfulness. And he's a guy, he has a 30-second drill he does where you just sprint for 30 seconds and then recover as long as it takes. Sprint again and recover. 30 seconds is really fun. It actually feels playful. So things like that instantly began to feel different. Now, was this before you started working on Born to Run as a book? Yeah. So here's the whole deal with this. What happened was I was in Chihuahua to research another magazine assignment about a Mexican pop singer named Gloria Trevi, who was like secretly running some kind of weird sex cult. So while I was in Chihuahua, I started to see pictures of, of the Tarahumara. And I was wondering, like, who, who are the guys in dresses? I never heard of them before. So people say, yeah, it's an indigenous culture. They can run 500 miles at a time. They wear sandals. And so I got an assignment from, I believe it was Runner's, yeah, it was Runner's, Runner's World to do a story about the Tarahumara. I did the story. I met Micah True. Micah True said, hey, I'm going to do this race in nine months. Come on back. Said, in the Copper Canyon. In the Copper Canyon. Come back for our 50-mile race. Like, I can't run no 50 miles. What was the longest you'd run at that point? If I'd done five but I even, wasn't even running then. Okay. So maybe a couple of years early, maybe I'd done four or five. That was kind of my thing, you know, three, four, five miles, do it for a couple of months, get an Achilles injury, get plantar fasciitis. Cycle continues. Right. Lay off and then you come back. And so, but yeah, five miles, I considered, you know, a long run, a long run. And so that was it. And maybe I had run, maybe not within the past two years. Then I meet Eric Gordon, or scratch that. So I meet Micah Trude in the Copper Canyon. I'm like, hey, this would be kind of cool. I can't do it. And then I'm back in the U.S., I get this magazine assignment with Eric Gordon. I tell him about this race and this crazy guy and this culture. He knew all about the Tarahumata. And he said, you can do it. I can, I can get you up to 50 miles in nine months. I can teach you how to run. And I'm like, man, this ain't going to happen, but sure, let's go for it. What were some of the changes that he made right away to get you on the path to being ready for this race in nine months? The eye-opener for me was I had never heard anyone talk about form. And I wonder, I suspect there's a big gap between what experienced coaches and athletes are doing and what everybody else is doing. And that gap might have, uh, have narrowed over the past few years. But back, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think that 
doing strides, uh, working on running form, that might be old hat. You know, like I'm sure Vin Lanana was doing it all the time, but I'm not sure if it trickled down to the average recreational runner. I don't think you were seeing that like in runner's world. People say, hey, you know something? You really need to, need to do these drills. You really need to focus on, on running form. You need to run tall. I, I don't recall ever seeing that. Uh, it was always about footwear. And so what Eric opened my eyes to, number one, was form matters. Change your form. And I, I remember always saying, just run the way you run. Don't try and monkey around with form. Um, the next thing he again, brought into it is go short in order to go long. Start doing short, hard speed drills. It will both build up your uh, aerobic conditioning and also help you change your stride. You can't really run badly if you're running fast and short. And then things like mixing it up, like when he would send me on an hour run, 25 minutes into it, he'd have me running hill repeats. So run 25 minutes and then do like three one-minute hill repeats as hard as you can and then keep running. Little things like that. It was just so smart. So he just brought a lot of variety into your program that previously didn't exist. Uh, but variety all dedicated to a point. The idea is that in a pinch when you're tired – Let's build that muscle memory in so your, your form will, will hold true. What you said a second ago about that trickle-down effect that just really isn't there, it's so true. And I think we talked about this in Chamonix a couple months back. In a lot of other sports, endurance sports even, they're skill-based. You take swimming. My wife grew up as a swimmer. From the time she was four years old, the first time she got in the pool, they start teaching you the skill of swimming, what a good stroke looks like. And everything builds off of that. Whereas running, it's almost the opposite. As you just said, it's go out and run, run this many miles, keep the effort easy. And then it isn't until you pursue a coach, if you even do that, or you go digging yourself that you're going to find this information that, you know, you're, that, that running is actually a skill and it's something that you can work on and tweak. And that's actually going to help make you a better, more resilient, faster athlete. You know, and uh, I, I really chalk it up to the footwear companies. You know, to me, that's where the blame lies. Because basically the message always was just let the footwear correct the problem right. instead of change the behavior. And again, no other activity are they telling you that. You go to a martial arts dojo, then I say, oh, yeah, but just buy a different, you know, what do you call it, gi, right? and that will fix your form. No, you, fix, you rehearse your form endlessly. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, form, dance, gymnastics, it's all about minuscule changes which have a profound effect. And I started to get wind of this with little things like I was getting these groin pulls early on in training and I would call Eric and say, I don't know what's going on, dude. I'm like, my groin is cramping up like crazy. I'm like low on like electrolytes. He's like, no, dude, you're probably just dragging your leg. You know, you look at the size. You're like, you know, you're 210 pounds. That leg is like probably 50 pounds of beef right there. If you're not popping that knee, driving that leg, then you're just hauling that 50 pounds. And what are you hauling it with? Your groin. And that's what he said. He just changed it. And it's amazing to me that I could just do that. I could focus on changing the behavior and the problem would disappear. So going back to this point in time, it seems like there are three things going on simultaneously. You're reporting on this story about the Mexican pop star. You're interviewing Eric Orton for this men's health piece. And you've had the seed planted about doing a 50-mile race in the Copper Canyon. Where do they all begin to converge? Yeah, that's the, that's the crazy life of a freelancer. And I probably had four other assignments I was overdue for at the same time. Uh, and also having like a, a wife and kids. So, 
not only did they converge, but they began to turn into one thing, which was I became really fascinated by this idea of human potential, human performance. You know, the the light started to dawn that maybe we're a lot stronger than we think we are. I, I can't almost say without quoting Ken Clover of the Leadville Trail 100, you know, we're stronger than we think we are and we can do more than we think we can. And that phrase just keeps coming to my mouth whenever I, I discuss what happened here because when I first began to experiment with myself as a guinea pig for changing running form, it's just something dawned on me like, man, how much other stuff is out there that we accept as conventional wisdom that's just really wrong, really wrong. And, you know, we got to remember that whole running shoe thing was just pounded in our heads nonstop. Change your shoes every 300 miles and get, get your gait analyzed and get the motion control and anti-pronation. And to have that foundation wobbly a little bit made me think, hey, I wonder if, if nutrition is all it's all chalked up to be. You know, what the kind of training things are we not really understanding the way we think we do? And so what began to happen was bit by bit, I began to no longer pursue the other articles and really look for these things about natural movement and um, uh, human performance and human potential. Did you know you had a book at that point or is that still somewhere off in the ether? No, I didn't know it. And I remember precisely the moment it occurred to me and I'm almost a little ashamed to tell the story because it, it will reveal how ignorant of running I was. So after... I believe I came back from the Copper Canyon the first time. I'd met the Tarahumata. I met Caballo Blanco. I began to research the Tarahumata a little bit. And I think that was the first time I really became cognizant of ultra runners. So I think Western States was probably 25 years old at that point. And that's the first time I like ever heard of Scott Jorick. And so that's how ignorant I was in 2004. I wasn't even really aware that people ran 100-mile races. Or if I did, there were probably three, three people who did it. So... I thought, oh, ultra running, like that sounds pretty cool. So I had this idea. I, I thought maybe it'd be cool to do a book where you take four different ultra runners from different parts of the country, whoever they are, and you know maybe Pam Reed and like Marshall Ulrich and Scott and like uh, Chrissy Mail and different ages, different genders, different parts of the country, different professions, and then track them over the course of a year and have them all arrive at the same race and then see how they do in that race. That was kind of the rough concept. And then I was simultaneously training for the Copper Canyon race and then traveling down there. And I was actually surprised that there was a race. I didn't think it was going to happen. And it was on the, one of the last buses back coming from like Chihuahua up to like Juarez. I was in the bus. It was like four in the morning. And it suddenly dawned on me, oh, yeah, that, that thing you wanted to track, it just happened. Like you just did it. So I was, I'd already done the race before I realized that would be a, a potential book. Was that a no shit moment for you? Yeah, for sure. But, but a good oh shit moment because I, I've sort of become compulsive over the years of always carrying a notebook and just taking notes on shit. So Lewis Escobar has pictures of me of everybody during the Copper Canyon, and I'm always hunched over, like, writing stuff down. So I chronicled the whole thing without even knowing that there's a potential book there. Let's bring it back to you at that point. You've just done this 50-mile race, which nine months prior seemed like a total aberration how are you thinking about yourself as a runner at that point? Do you, do you think you had finally made it as a runner? You could call yourself a runner. I'd love to get into your headspace at that time. It was, uh, it was a lot of competing thoughts. Um, one was, I thought, yeah, I'm unstoppable. So unstoppable that when I came back from Copper Canyon and I decided, Hey, I could probably do a book. I called Ken Clover in Leadville 
and said, hey, listen, I, I think I'm going to do this book. Can I come to Leadville this summer and have access to the course? He's like, yeah, you can have access. It's called a bib. Come and run. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. I just started in September. This is only March. You're racing. I can't do 100 miles. Like, well, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you are in a wheelchair. I, I didn't understand. You know, I'm 72. Like, how old are you? I'm 40-something. Oh, you can't. Just bullied and hectored me and harassed me until the, the point where I'm like, yeah, I can do 100 miles. I couldn't do it in a freaking 100 miles, you know. I timed out at Winfield after 50. So on the one hand, I kind of just feel like, yeah, why not? I did 50. Do 100. At the same time, I was still wearing like Nike Vomeros and struggling with form and still having nagging things. So I, you know, I, I was really you know, transitional. When did you start to connect the dots between what Eric was telling you from a training standpoint, what you had witnessed with the Tatarumata uh, in Copper Canyons with their minimal footwear and their running form and realize that that was going to be a key piece of the story? After, so we did the Copper Canyon run in March and then, you know, Ken got me all on fire for this ridiculous idea of running the Leadville Trail 100, which I attempted to do and timed out at 50, which was the greatest moment of my life when they say, you can't run anymore. We're taking your braces off. Thank Jesus. Um, and then, but I had like nagging Achilles kind of plantar fasciitis. And so in my mind, I'm like, wait, I thought changing my running form was going to cure the injuries, but I still feel nagging pains. And then I realized I hadn't really changed the injuries. And this was, this was the key moment. So for the first time then in that year, I actually did not have a race to train for. I'd done Copper Canyon. I flamed out halfway through Leadville and that was it for my competitive season. And after that, with nothing to train for, then I really began to focus on form. And that's when it clicked through my head that what you got to do is you, you can't do both at the same time. You can't decide, hey, I'm going to break down my form and rebuild it, and I'm also training for a 50. It's one or the other. And so then I actually went fully barefoot and really focused on the drills that uh, Eric was, was teaching me. He allowed me to keep running in cushioned shoes. I was getting away with semi-sloppy form because I had to, I had to increase the miles. But now with no miles to increase, I can work on form. And that's when I was like, ah, this, this stuff really holds water. What did you do at that time to work on your form aside from going barefoot? you just doing drills all the time? Was it drills in combination with some level of running? I'd love for you to break it down for me. Yeah. So the, the, the most difficult part of this process, and one I, I struggle with when I meet people who want to know more, is it's very hard to translate movement into language. Uh, and Danny Dreyer of Chi Running, I think, struggles with this a lot because he gives really good advice, except when he says, for instance, you know, lean forward from the ankles. You get 50 people and you give them that instruction and you'll see 50 different interpretations of what leaning forward from the ankles is. And so I kept trying to meet people like Barefoot Ted, Barefoot Ken, Ken Bob, Eric, and the counsel they're giving me was good, but it's hard to understand it. And you don't have any feedback. You can't see what you're doing. Uh, but then I met a guy named Lee Saxby, and Lee Saxby is a running coach in um, the UK. He's basically building off the pose method of Dr. Romanoff. And Lee's a guy that doesn't bother trying to tell you what to do. He just gives you drills, and he'll do things like have you do deep squats with your heel on the ground. Um, I can't remember the, a couple of the other ones, but, oh, the 100 up. So the 100 up is an exercise from the 1800s where you make two marks on the ground and you do strides in place where you're bringing your knee as high as your hips, back straight, and not moving off your marks. And if you can do 100 repetitions walking, then you try to do a trotting. But what you find is that if you're not actually maintaining good form, you're going to stray off those two marks on the ground. And, or you're not going to get your knee as high as your hip. 
And so doing drills like that began to actually give me a sense of like sort of running proud, knee, you know, driving with the knee, landing. And the other thing too is when you run in place, you can't heel strike. You have to land on your midfoot when you walk in place. And then the other thing was uh, working with Eric. And er Eric immediately sort of throttled back uh, the volume. And we went super short and worked only on form drills. As we're sitting here right now, you are barefoot. You've got your running sandals off to the side of the chair. When we ran in Chamonix a couple months ago, you were in the sandals. When was that moment that you said, screw the shoes, they're gone. This is the big source of a lot of my problems. I remember I had bought like three pairs of Omeros like on sale because I guess when they're phasing out one year into the next. And so I liked that shoe so much. I bought these three pairs of Nike Vomeros. And there's that moment like, oh, these are actually hurting, not helping. But I bought them. Like, you know, the sunk cost fallacy. Like, I got to use them. And I went on eBay and sold them. And again, I think that might have been probably the fall of that year as I was coming into winter. And I decided, that's it. I'm done with these forever. Because I realized that I think because of my size and my age, the bad habits were so close to the surface that I needed a constant kind of like whip crack, whip, whip crack to keep me on good form. And I find it today is when I go through a long winter and if, if I'm wearing a trail shoe through the winter because of snow or like even like thick wool socks with a pair of sandals, come spring, my, my form has deteriorated and I've got to really you know sharpen it up again. Have you raced since that DNF at Leadville? Kind of. I've kind of raced. But this is something I'm really struggling with now. And it's actually like a painful thing to talk about because, again, that whole idea of, you know, who's a real runner. But I'm really struggling with this notion of competition. I feel like it actually does more harm than good. And For yourself or in general? I think in general. But it's, again, it's very hard sometimes to separate your personal preference from a universal good. But I was, I was with a run one time with a guy, and he said, you know, I, n- I never had a problem ever with running too far, but only run, with running too fast. And um, so that's what I struggle with. Personally, I have no interest in competition at all. It doesn't, doesn't excite me. I will never be top anything in anything, age group or anything. So I, don't, I really don't care. And I, I think I try to project that off as a universal good for everybody. No one should care about competition. At the same time, I also know that when I've been most scrupulous about my training is when there's that, like, you know, come to Jesus moment on the horizon where, like, you know, you got a half marathon coming up, dude, so you better get out and run. So what I'm trying to do is find that balance between not caring about the outcome but at the same time being dedicated to a goal so that you stay consistent. But, yeah, I've raced a little. Um, I've done a couple 50Ks, a couple half marathons. I almost never miss – uh, the Bird in Hand Half Marathon we have out in Lancaster. I love that race a lot. But basically, to me, they're all fun runs. Would you consider yourself a competitive person in general? You know, I, I'm on the verge of saying no. But every once in a while, I think, oh, yeah, actually, there's this woman named Rebecca Sklute who wrote this amazing book about Henrietta Lacks. Uh, in my brain, we are arch rivals. She's like the freaking Joker, and I'm Batman. <laughs> I've never met her. I've heard she's an amazing person. She's a great writer. I don't know because I will not read her books. It's all competition. I'm just competitive with her. Uh, and Why? So, oh, because she sells more books than I do, Pe- period. You know, she's a more successful writer than I am. And so 
every time I'm ready to get all like, you know, saintly about, hey, maybe competition isn't good. And I did, well, uh, go buy a Henrietta Lacks book sometimes, see how uncompetitive you are. So it's, it's there just in other aspects of, of right, your life. For sure. And that's why I wrestle with it because I think, again, clearly that's psychopathic <laughs> mentality. That's crazy what I'm thinking about. But at the same time, it also fuels me. Um, it gives me energy to work harder and try to find a good story. So I don't know what the balance is. Well, it's this weird paradox because as you just described, competition, whether it's in a running race, whether it's as an author trying to sell books, whether it's in your work environment, could be at home with your siblings, can help you to produce your best work or bring out best version of yourself. But like anything, if it becomes all consuming, it can run you into the ground, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, so I was just at UTMB to crew for a friend and uh, he DNF'd. And um, afterwards we were chatting, having a beer. And I says, what do you think, man? You gonna come back next year? And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. This is really fun. It's a great adventure. But yeah, I said, don't you feel like you got to like, you know, show that you can do it? He's like, I, I don't think the mountains keep in score. I don't think the Alps say, ha ha, it's one nothing. They don't care. And so uh, to me, it was a refreshing attitude. He went for the adventure. He rarely, almost never DNFs, but he walked away from it. He went hard as he could. And then he walked away with, you know, hey, that was fun. So something about that mentality. I feel like this guy's got something dialed in pretty good. Hey, we're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's the 37th annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K. This race is a runner's favorite for its scenery and value. I can personally vouch for it as I've run the half marathon many times, and last year I had a blast winning the 10K. The half marathon is a fast and certified course through San Francisco's scenic Golden Gate Park, and it's been selected as the road race of the year by the Roadrunners Club of America several times. The 5K and 10K are both fast downhill courses, and both are certified by USA Track and Field. After the race, you can follow the runners and walkers to the post-race festival for food, drinks, free massages, and offerings from all the vendors. The Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K is presented by Pama Kid Runners. This event supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year, which is just incredible. So mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at getfitkpsf.com. Use the code SHAKEOUT5, that's SHAKEOUT and the number 5, and you'll save 5 bucks on your registration before November 30th, 2019. You can also find all of this information in the show notes that go along with this episode. My thanks to the 37th Annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. A lot of places that I want to go, and we have limited time, so we'll jump around here. I want to get into your origins as a writer. As we talked about, I mean, you've written three books now. You were an AP reporter covering war in Rwanda and Uganda, I believe. When did you first realize that you had an interest in writing? I um, always had an interest in reading, but not necessarily writing. I love to read. I still do love to read. Writing to me is, is work, and so I never really pursued it. I read a lot. I had this sort of fantasy about being a writer, but I didn't pursue it through high school or college. I was an English major in college. And it was only after sort of knocking around for a few years with odd jobs uh, that I was able to get a, an assignment with the Associated Press working overseas in, in Spain and Portugal. And then it was, um, you had to write every day a lot. And so 
Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I don't think I ever got to a point where I thought, oh, I like this. It's more like this is a pretty cool job to have, and I'll just, you know, stick to it. Have you always been a curious person? Yeah, I think it's more like ADD, man. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Um, I had a professor one time at an event diagnose me. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medicine, so, you know, pretty good credentials. And he's kind of patting me on the back saying, you know, I'm sure school was very difficult for you, you know, because of your attention deficiency. And like, dude, I'm not ADD. He's like, oh, yeah, you totally are. Because he watched me bouncing around like, a, like, a, like an idiot. Um, so I think there's that. I think there's a certain, like, high adrenaline, you know, hyperactivity. So my head's kind of you know, spinning around, checking things out a lot. In addition to reading a lot as you were growing up, did you, you mentioned how you carried a journal around with you. This is in recent years, and you're always taking notes on what's going on. Did you do that from a young age, or is that something that started once you became a reporter? Yeah, it became a work thing, uh, not not a personal interest thing. That whenever I just sort of found myself around cool, interesting people, when there's a potential that something unusual is going to happen, uh, again, I, I don't think of it as a personal journal. I think it's, this is potential gold mine of material and just, you know, just start writing it down. And it's true. Like you're hanging out with Billy Barnett in the bottom of a canyon, you know, Billy Bonehead's going to do something and you're going to make sure you have notes on it. What were those first odd jobs that you had coming out of college? Uh, yeah. So let's see, I was an arborist, uh, working around Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, you know, working on cutting down trees and cutting tree limbs and then house painter. So I uh, painted houses for about a year before I saved enough money to then go to uh, Europe. And then I sort of backpacked through Europe, got into Madrid. And then because I was a really big guy when most Spaniards at that point weren't that big, I got a job working in a warehouse shifting boxes. And then from there as a scene shifter for a local theater company. And then from there, I started teaching English to members of the cast at, in a theater company in Madrid. And then became an English teacher for a refugee resettlement program back in Philly. And uh, after that, I wanted to go back to Madrid. And that's how I talked my way into a job uh, with the Associated Press. How old were you at the time? Uh, Probably pushing 30. Yeah, probably pushing 30 by the time I got the AP job. And when you got the AP job, they threw you right into (laughs) war (laughs) reporting? Yeah, man, it was crazy. So the reason I got the job is because... The Associated Press is based in New York, and it's a conglomerate of newspapers. And so basically they'll sign one reporter, so a bunch of newspapers get the reporting from one reporter across the globe. And, but they had a little, a little loophole. Ordinarily, you had to apply for your job in New York and work in New York until you were assigned somewhere overseas, you know, like France or, Paris, or, France or, or Spain. But you could be hired on the spot as a local hire and so if you wanted to get hired in Kenya, for instance, you can show up in the Nairobi Bureau and they would hire you as a local hire. Now, ostensibly, a local hire is an actual Kenyan who helps the staff reporters do their job. But if you rock up as an Australian or an American or a Brit in the Nairobi Bureau, you can get hired as a local hire. And that's what I did. I had a buddy who worked for the AP in Madrid. So he said, hey, listen, if you come, if you come on back here, I can get you an interview with the bureau chief and maybe she'll hire you as a local hire because you speak Spanish. Do you remember your first assignment? Well, what happened was I spent three days being trained in Madrid, and then I took the train from Madrid to Lisbon, and literally the day I walked into the office, my second-in-command, I actually was the boss of somebody else, I walk in, and she's like, oh, thank God you're here. Civil war just broke out in Angola. I'm like, oh, that's too bad. What do we care? We cover Angola. Why? It's a former Portuguese colony. 
And at that moment, holy crap, I literally just arrived. I had my bags in my hand. And they said, you're going to have to go down to Angola. So I think I did two days in the office, and then I was on a flight to Angola, like that same week. Do you know anything about journalism, reporting, or how any of that worked? I am making the, sim- the universal symbol for zero right now. No, I didn't know anything. I had been trained for three days in Madrid in AP style. How to re- Fortunately, AP stories are short. They're basically four-paragraph stories, just a brief synopsis, particularly if you're in a place like Angola, which doesn't have much interest in the U.S., so if I could just give four paragraphs about who, what, where, when, I was okay. And I spoke English and Spanish. The photographer who was with me spoke Spanish and Portuguese. So we had this ridiculous, like, Rube Goldberg machine of languages where I would ask Guillermo a question in Spanish. He would translate into, <laughs> into Portuguese, ask an Angolan who would reply in Portuguese, translate to Spanish, back to me into English. And that's how we did our reporting. What did you learn reporting on that first story? What were the biggest eye-openers for you? Assume you're wrong. Assume, assume you're wrong. Like, ask and ask and re-ask. Because and several times I would ask something, I would have it right, and then I'd re-ask the same question. And somehow, not because of the language, but because of my own interpretation, I got it wrong. And I, I, see, I see it today, you know, that I think I got it right, and I ask again, and, oh, it was not what I thought it was. Um, and... Yeah, that was a really important thing. Well, that's super interesting because it's very similar to what you just described a little while ago about questioning running and running shoes and then nutrition and training. And I find that really fascinating. Is that directly from your journalism background or do you remember being that way as a kid where you questioned a lot of things? No, I think I think I learned it. I think that uh, I had to assume that I was probably a lot more dumb and self-confident earlier, but it was this experience of being way out of my depth, like way out of my depth, and then covering things that mattered. So that year, I was hired, I think it was November 1st, whatever it was, 1990, and then I was in Angola like two weeks later, and I was there right up until Christmas. I remember I flew back to Lisbon right before Christmas, and they had to bring me back because the second-in-command in our office was going back to the UK for Christmas. So I had to leave the conflict area and go back to the Lisbon office so I could cover the office. And one day after I arrived, a plane crashed in Southern Portugal. And suddenly I went from covering a conflict in Angola to covering a horrific plane crash. There was a a Dutch KLM uh, passenger plane that crashed on the tarmac in Faro, Portugal. And then next thing I know, I'm standing on the tarmac with bodies everywhere. So you're in this position of, man, you're you're, you're covering stuff that are... It's really important, really, really important, and you don't have the the margin to be a dumbass anymore. You got to know what you're talking about because people back home in Amsterdam want to know what happened on this plane. And I think that was when it, it taught me that chances are you're going to make a mistake, and the mistake is going to have consequences. So you know, tighten up your act. How many years were you a reporter for the AP? I was five years for the AP. Yeah. When did you move back to the states? Uh, mid-90s, uh, so I think it was 90, when I got there, it was maybe 95, 96, 96, I think, when I moved back, because I felt like I had luckily um, sort of tapped out on the possibilities as an AP reporter. You're really limited to, again, four or five paragraph stories, and when you're in an area for that long, you start to accumulate all this knowledge, but there's no outlet for it. So I thought, let me move back to Philly and see if I can do some longer pieces. Were you interested in freelancing for magazines at that time, picking up a newspaper job? How were you thinking about your career trajectory at that point? Yeah, I wasn't sure what careers there were. Uh, The only thing I'd ever done was AP reporting, but I wanted to write longer, 
And so, yeah, I applied for newspaper jobs and magazine jobs and really didn't get any of them. So I just started freelancing. Have you always considered yourself a storyteller? You know, it's funny. So I'm traveling around now with Pat Sweeney, who is one of the great characters of the trail running world. And that's what I love about trail running, too. Like these just guys. So just, many interesting personalities. Totally. Yeah. And such big brains like percolating between those ears. So you see a guy with a beard and a suntan and rarely wears a shirt. And you tend to think, oh, okay, well, he's just, you know, a runner guy. And then you talk to him. Wow. But he asked me the same question. We were driving up here from Santa Barbara, and he said, yeah, do you consider yourself a journalist or a, or a storyteller? Those exact words that you just asked. And kind of indignantly, like, I'm a journalist, dude. I'm a trained, hardened journalist. And then I thought, eh, actually, it's a good point. Um, I think when I write now, what I'm trying to do is tell a story. And it's kind of a painful thing to differentiate because you – really want to be known for accuracy, for truth, for veracity. But at the same time, what I'm trying to do is get people excited and emotional. And to me, it's almost like the emotion, the sentiment is the important thing. And so, but I don't know, you know, like Jen Shelton, uh, I just bumped into her in Salt Lake recently. And for a good period of time after Born to Run came out, she was kind of pissed at me. And I felt I really captured her honestly. And I think it took her a good while to, to say, Hey, I, I think you're on the money with that. So it, it's a hard thing to sort of reconcile in your mind. I want to be accurate, but at the same time, I want people to feel the experience. Does that mean you feel you have to, and maybe these aren't the right words to describe it, bend the truth sometimes when you're telling a story, or is it just that your perspective is different from theirs? I think that's the thing about it. You know, one thing that we had drilled into us as news reporters, is you don't share your story with anybody. And it was one of these rules that didn't really seem to make sense, but you just, you couldn't do it. It was just like this gospel, you never, ever do it. And you kind of obey it without asking why. And now I sort of see why, because now that I've published things, you just get everybody chiming in. No, not this. You should have said that. I don't want this. I want that. And what you understand is that there is no reconciling. If you have 15 people in an article you have 15 different interpretations of the story and you can't reconcile them. And if I try to reconcile with Mario's viewpoint, well, I'm doing Billy's viewpoint, shortchanging it. And so it's got to be your story the way you see it. What I like to do though, so what I did for Born to Run was after we came back from the Copper Canyon and I decided, okay, this could be a book. I then went and visited everybody that was going to be in the book. So I hung out with Barefoot Ted and Scott and Jenny and um, Jen, and uh, I brought a recorder with me and I asked them two questions. One was, like, tell me all about your own experience. And then secondly, tell me what you saw. So when you were in the race, like, what did you see? And what I was trying to do was meld all those different camera angles into one. But in the end, it was all coming through me. For Born to Run specifically, what was the reaction like from the characters in the story? When the book came out, assuming most, if not all of them, read it, did you hear from them, you just mentioned how Jen said to you, she, she didn't talk to you for a while. She wasn't thrilled with how she was portrayed in the book. Did you get that from any of the other characters? Yeah. So what was interesting was I thought if anybody's going to be pissed, it's going to be Barefoot Ted and Micah True. So as soon as I had a galley, so I had an early draft of the book in print, I sent it to both of them. And, you know, look, I'm teeing off on these guys a little bit. They're coming across as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm showing some, some bruises and foibles. They deserve to know before anybody else. 
Barefoot Ted, man, to his everlasting credit, immediately got back to me and said, this is the PhD thesis I no longer have to write. He was a major champion of the book immediately and often and forever. And I said, dude, that is a huge amount of credit. Um, so I, I give, and, and Kabaya were just enough to be pissed off. And he was like, in my ear, pissed off. I said, dude, just read the end, man. You know, don't just read five pages and start yelling at me. And over time, he came to embrace it. Because, you know, the best piece of advice I got from a buddy of mine uh, who was an editor at Outside was, you got to tell the story from the beginning, not, not from the end. Don't tell it from the perspective of what you know now. Tell it from what you didn't know then. And so when I portray Micah, it's like the guy that I first saw. And over time, my opinion and knowledge of him changed. Evolved, right. Right. But you don't show that in the first page. You show it when it happened later on. When Born to Run was finally published and it was out, it was not the bestseller that it is now. It was slow to gain momentum, wasn't getting coverage by any of the major running publications. It was definitely slow to gain that momentum. Was that surprising to you at all? No, I didn't know what to expect. I thought that this book was unusual, that I thought this is probably the only really fun running adventure book that was out there. You know, most running books tend to focus on a single person. Like, I love Ultra Marathon, man. I thought Dean Karnaz has sort of set the model for what a good running book could be. But Dean's the only guy in the book, which serves its purpose. It's a great adventure about a, about a great runner. Uh, and I thought, hey, there's, there's room on the shelf for something different, you know, like sort of whole big, colorful adventure. So to me, this is something that people would, it's something that I would like to read, that I would want to find in a bookstore. But I didn't know what to expect out in the world. I did expect that the major running publications would, you know, give me the, give me the shoulder, you know, cold shoulder, because I was really teeing off hard on uh, Nike and the rest of the footwear companies. Did you expect it to transform the footwear industry like it did? No, that was a surprise, complete surprise. I thought my best hope was that people would grab onto this like into thin air or into the wild. To the that, story itself. To the story, to the fun. Because I thought that's something that was not being represented in running. Even in the running magazines, often running is like, you know, run as little as possible and still do a 5K. You know, how you can do a marathon and only, you know, 20 minutes of running a week. It's, it, it basically suggested that running is kind of this crappy thing we have to do. You want to do a marathon, but you don't really want to run. Here's your answer. You know, how to get thin by running. But nobody would say, hey, man, this is awesome. This is fun, man. This is really cool. And I thought, that's cool. Other people would respond to that. And that one chapter on running shoes and, yeah, basically running shoes and the biomechanics, I came, like, within a whisker of cutting it out of the book because it kind of hits the brakes. You're following this adventure, and all of a sudden, like, oh, let's go to the blackboard and have a lecture now. And I thought, ah, man, it really disrupts the flow. And I was kind of weighing it back and forth. I thought, I'm not sure if people really know this stuff yet. This might actually be new. Let's just stick it in there. And that became the thing that people responded to. Does it bother you at all that you've kind of been known as the barefoot running guy since Born to Run came out and that it had this effect on the footwear industry? Or given what you learned in your own self-experimentation, is that something that you're proud of? Oh, I'm proud of it for sure. I feel like it's an undeserved pride because again, I'm not the guy who invented any of this stuff. I, I can't teach the stuff. I'm not even a really good practitioner of the stuff. So my only hesitation is that uh, it's kind of undeserved. You know, I'm wearing somebody else's cape here. What are your thoughts on what's happening right now? Elliot Kipchoge just broke two hours in the marathon 
And as tremendous as an achievement as that is for a human being, most of the attention the last couple of weeks has been on the shoes that have been on his feet. And are these supercharged shoes or should they be legal for runners? They've gone in the opposite direction. Is it doing good for people from a biomechanics standpoint? I'd love to get your thoughts on this current evolution of the footwear industry and what's happening with these super shoes at the front of the pack. You know, actually, I saw them for the first time yesterday. Uh, my friend Pat and I were in a fleet feet in San Mateo, and, and he's like, these are the shoes. Oh, those are the things? Honest to God, and this sounds like I know that I talk crap about everything, but I look at this like, what a bunch of crap. Like, who gives a crap? Like, I, I would say that other than Elliot Kipchoge, everybody else can lose like 10 pounds off their own body before the four grams off the shoe is going to make any difference. And like the, the streamlined heel, I just look at this like this is $250 worth of bullshit, you know, just nonsense. It's not going to help anybody run better. Like change your form before you drop a bundle on this nonsense. So, and honestly, Mary, this is again where I feel like I almost discredit myself. Like uh, I, I reveal myself as not a real runner. I also don't care. Speed records, who cares, you know? But like the fun, the joy, being out with your buddies, and who cares what the time is? I don't disagree with you, but it's kind of funny because it's the same thing you hear hardcore cyclists say about people who go and buy, say, $10,000 bikes or like more, a $5,000 wheel set. They're like, more money, yeah. More money than miles. Maybe, yeah. Maybe you'll get another like 4% efficiency out of that, but if you drop 15 pounds and worked on your positioning, you wouldn't need the $10,000 bike. You would get a lot faster. And we're starting to see some of that in running now. And just this evolution in running shoes, it's the first real major change that we've seen in running shoes in the last 30 or so years. And it's really fascinating to see how up in arms people are about it. And should these shoes be legal or not? Should we stop where midsole thickness ends and yada, yada, yada? Yeah. I got to say, I, I am so uninterested in the conversation at all. Like, why are we talking about the footwear? And I, I also have a, a lot of con conflicted feelings even about the achievement. You know what rescued the whole incident for me was? The look on his face as he approached the finish line. I was so prepared to be a whole skeptic of the whole thing. Like, who cares? It's two hours. Who cares? Who cares? You know, it's not important. Humans are not fast. It's an arbitrary number. But then I saw the joy on his face. I'm like, all right, that dude's having a good time. That's what it's all about. Yeah. He was so happy. And I thought, okay. I don't know why he's happy. Maybe he's happy because of the money. I don't care. But, okay, this guy did something that people said he couldn't do. He's really happy. All right, I'm down with that. We got to wrap up here in a few minutes. I would love to talk about your book that's out now, Running with Sherman. I'm only about five pages into it because I just got it two days ago. You've got the shirt on right now. What's the response been early days here? Really good. Really good. Um, yeah. I think the thing about it is that, you know, when, when you write something that really comes from the heart and it feels authentic, people respond to it. And one of the things, you know, with, with Born and Run, where I was looking at was maybe humans are better at running than we thought we were. And with Natural Born Heroes, I was looking at, you know, maybe humans are, are stronger, more resilient than we thought. And with this one, I thought, you know, maybe the animal-human partnership is more important and more natural than we thought it was. And I think a lot of people sense that. Like, they want to be around dogs. They want to be around animals. And what I'm opening their eyes to is that's a good thing. It's normal. And it's really more important than you think it is. When you own that dog, it's not just an accessory. You're tapping into something ancestral and powerful that can really help you. Did you realize that before you sat down to write this? Midway through. Uh, because what I, what I try to do with a, with a, a book is 
when I, when I think it has a potential to be a book, I'm, I'm looking not just a story, but what's the extractable skill? Like what's, what's here that will appeal to everybody. And so with born to run, when I realized, Hmm, you know, this, this, uh, the running technique and transforming yourself, a lot of people can appreciate. It's not just my adventure story, but it's a, it's a resonating story. And so with, um, running with Sherman, I only knew I had a book when it was more, about more than me and something that everyone could tap into. What was that moment? Was it a moment? Yeah. So when I, when I when we began to train Sherman to be my running partner and train for these burrow races, I didn't know how to train animals. So I started to research this and I kept finding stories over and over again with different kinds of animals and different kinds of people about the, the skill and art and the legacy of training animals. I, I heard this great story about Jimmy Stewart who had this relationship with a horse where he could tell the horse, like, Here, here's what you, I know it's going to be hard because, you know, you're only a horse, but here's what I need you to do. And Jimmy Stewart believed that he could actually talk to horses and they would understand. And my first thought was, like, come on, Jimmy, you're drinking the moonshine a little bit too much. But then I started to think, well, maybe because he's an actor and his whole stock and trade is empathy and observance and communication non-verbally. That's what actors do. Maybe, maybe it's legitimate. Maybe he actually could communicate. And that's what got me thinking, oh, there could be something here. What did you, or what have you learned in the evolution of your relationship with Sherman, your donkey? So, you know, when when you jump into training a donkey, you are going in the deep end of the pool. I mean, you're you're heading into sort of like black belt jujitsu kind of stuff uh, because donkeys are the most notoriously stubborn. But I think among the most acutely sensitive creatures in our, in our world. Um, they are still wild. We haven't really domesticated donkeys the way we have horses and dogs. So if you're trying to train a donkey, man, you've gotten yourself a pretty stiff challenge. It became very hard right off the bat, but it also really made me zero in on what I was doing. You can't kind of cheat and, and train a donkey. So what I, what I learned is that you have to uh, understand the motivation and the energy of the other creature, just like another person, and channel what they want to do into what you want to do. When you got Sherman, you weren't exactly planning to train a donkey to run. I did get this far into the book. He showed up essentially at your doorstep, and you didn't know what you were going to do with him. No, yeah, he was a, he was a rescue animal. We live in uh, you know rural Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, and uh, a neighbor told us about a donkey that was being held by a hoarder, my, da- my daughter, had, for weird reasons of her own, had asked for a donkey for her birthday. And I thought, okay, maybe we'll take this rescue donkey away from this guy, bring it home. And when we did, that's when a friend who trains animals said, this animal is really bad shape. It may die. You need to get it moving, and you need to give it a job that it wants to do. But, you know, by the way, that, that previous comment um, you meant about training, I remember you talking about Sally McRae, who's always on the move, always doing things. You train her, and you, you realize you have to find the things that Sally naturally wants to do and basically change your coaching to match her lifestyle as opposed to making her lifestyle match your coaching. Right. It's kind of like that. Like that's what makes a good coach is you understand this is what makes her happy. Don't make her unhappy by changing it. Find out what you want to do and fit it into what she wants to do. How did you do that with Sherman? It was tricky because you're dealing with an animal that can't tell you. Right. But what we started to discover by accident was that Sherman really liked companionship. Again, it should have been obvious to do, you know, the animal is kept in a stall by itself. Now it's out in a field with goats and sheep and cats. 
And we started to realize that he really liked being around them. He started following this goat called Lawrence, just follow him everywhere. And that's when it began to percolate. Oh, okay, if we keep him with friends, he'll want to run. Our friend Tanya had a couple donkeys. Hey, bring your donkeys over. And that, that became it. Uh, Sherman loved to be with the, with the herd. So we have three donkeys and three humans. It's six bodies out there. That's what Sherman started to dig. At what point did you realize that it wasn't just donkeys and animals like Sherman who crave companionship, but that is something that is inherent to all of us as animals, especially humans? Well, this is the thing I was wrestling with with competition. So out where we live, there's an Amish running team called Vela Springa, uh, and their motto, actually Vela Springa means let's all run, but that all is the important part of the, of the, the phrase. You know, the Amish don't do anything for individual pride. It all has to be for the group, for the community. And that's why they call themselves Let's All Run, so they don't get shut down by the Amish elders who think they're doing it for their own personal glory. And their, their phrase that they have at the Burton Hand Half Marathon is the joy of running in community. It's on all their T-shirts. It's on all their signs. The joy of running in community. And that's why I, I, I struggle with this idea of competition because these guys are very hardcore runners. They're fast, they're strong, they do Ragnars, they do sub-three-hour marathons, but always as a gang, as a team, a cross-country team. So those things began to sort of connect for me, like, huh, I'm running with these Amish dudes, they all run together. I'm running with these donkeys, they're all having fun. I would finish runs with the donkeys and my wife and my friend Zeke feeling way better than other runs because we were going slower, we were communicating, you're consciousness is off yourself. It's on somebody else. So for me, I I just started to feel and see the effects of running as a group. Truly interesting. I think for me, that's where competition can foster community because you can be competitive with yourself and a lot of people are. And sometimes you have to be because it can be to your detriment if you're always trying to compare yourself to someone else. But if you look at competition as making one another better, that does foster a sense of community and it can keep you coming back to things. At least that's what I found for myself. I mean, it makes sense. You know, so I'm working on a book now looking at, at this notion of competition. And again, I like the fact that I'm, I really don't get it. Like I, my opinions aren't formed yet because like you said, if I want to set a come to Jesus moment, I can say, Hey, you know what? July 31st, I'm going to run 13 miles. Well, just go ahead and do it. I, why do I have to sign up for the burden hand half marathons? But you're right. It's something about that, the gathering, the, the, the group consciousness, the, the accountability to the group. Maybe that's what the true essence of competition is, not necessarily the thing on your wrist, but hey, I'm around, I'm around a bunch of people and I need to show them that I've done my work. So when you realized that you had a book or at least you realized you wanted to maybe pursue this as a book, were you looking for a project at the time? Were you like, I can't not, whatever else you were working on at the time, you were like, I can't not write about this journey that I've been on with my donkey Sherman. No, I didn't see it coming. Um, I had finished Natural Born Heroes. I'd finished a book tour. I'm, I'm always happier not writing. You know, I was really looking forward to just working on the farm and chilling a little bit. But this thing started, and I got a call from an editor that I've worked with at the New York Times in the Well section, Tara Parker Pope. And again, you know, you get these editors, and when they're good, man, it's just you're so lucky. So Tara called up, and she was wondering whether I wanted to do a piece for a new, a new newsletter she was starting. And she's like, yeah, so what are you up to these days? I said, oh, you know, we got this donkey, and I'm just trying to heal it. And she's like, oh, that's going to be a great book. And I said, no, it's not a book, Tara. I don't think this thing's going to live, you know. It's, we only had it a week. It's in I'm bad just trying shape. to keep it alive, right? Right. And she's like, 
that's why it's going to be a good book. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so she, she got the wheels turning a Planet little bit. Planet seed, right. And then she said, hey, why don't you do a series for me about these animal-human partnerships? You know, like find out about people who hunt with hawks and this girl in Michigan who trained zebras. So she started it. She got the wheels turning, and then I began to see something more. Last question. Despite the title of the book, Running with Sherman, it's not really a book about running. It's not just for runners. What do you hope readers take away from this book, Running with Sherman, that you've just put out? By the way, the title is Tara's as well. So I, I wanted to name the series something else, like really weird and complicated. And she's like, it's Running with Sherman. Just trust your editor. Keep it simple. I think the, the real extractable thing are, are two things. You know, this, this idea of community, companionship, um, compassion is really a, a lost art in a lot of ways. We're sort of nice by accident once in a while. Like, well, okay, I'll give a 20% tip instead of 15%. But this idea of taking time, paying attention, understanding people, I think you learn it much more around the animals. I think it's not a coincidence that the Amish are among the most nonviolent, healthy, mentally well culture in the country. There's no violent crime among the Amish, almost no suicides, very tight family units, uh, low incidence of uh, cardiac problems, clinical depression. I don't want to over-glamorize it, but they're also the only culture that still maintains a relationship with animals. So I think maybe there's something there where you learn that empathy and it extends other parts of your life. Uh, but the second thing is... Um, what I think is really kind of cool is that there are these opportunities out there. You know, if you join a running club, there's someone who's having a problem, someone who's lagging, and your own, like, joy will increase by maintaining that community. Like, help that person out. Bring them in. There's a great club called the Fishtown Beer Runners, and their, their focus is always on get the laggers, make them realize that this is for them. I think that's a great takeaway and a great place to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, Mary, this is cool. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thanks. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. What'd you think? If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to the 37th annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon, 10K and 5K for sponsoring this episode. You can run through San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and along the Pacific Ocean on these fast and scenic courses. This event is presented by Pamakid Runners and it supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year. So mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at getfitkpsf.com. Use the code SHAKEOUT5, that's SHAKEOUT in the number five, and you'll save five bucks on your registration if you sign up before November 30th, 2019. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show. He makes every episode sound clear and amazing. I couldn't do this without him. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas, who handles my sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys, they help keep this ship afloat. 
Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.